Testing one, two, three. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Bible College. <laughs> and tonight we're on the book, Knowing the Doctrines of the Bible. We are talking about God, which is a big, big subject. So we're going to find out some more tonight on the attributes of God. And our guest speaker tonight, a graduate of this class, is none other than John Boyle. So would you welcome John tonight? Woo! Thank you. <laughs> good evening, good evening. Sorry for the lay. I'm trying to give my wife a heads up. She has some stuff she got to take care of. So, the attributes of God. Yes. So, what a good and big God we serve, right? The only true and living God, right? So, tonight we're going to learn some of his attributes, some distinctions, um, like from attributes to character. Um, so there's there's a lot packed into this. Uh, I only only studied like twenty pages up because there's a lot to cover in this. So, uh, and then we'll get into angels if we can get through this and finish chapter two and start chapter three. So, let's get started. Uh, bottom of page fifty-seven. It says, "As God is infinite in His being, it is impossible for any creature to know Him exactly as He is." For example, God says of himself, I am holy. Therefore, we can say God is holy. Holiness, then, is an attribute of God. Page 58. What is the difference between the names of God and the attributes of God? The names of God express his whole being, while his attributes indicate various sides of his character. There are many things which, we, which may be said of so great a being as God, and our task will be made easier if we classify his attributes. To comprehend God fully would be like trying to carry the Atlantic Ocean in a teacup. Impossible. Uh, so number one, unrelated attributes, or what God is in himself apart from creation. Uh, real quick, anybody name some of the names? Many. Many. 
many. I wrote a list. Of, I got 13, but there might be more. But there's a lot. He is a God that can cover everything, right? Uh, so that was unrelated attributes. So two is active attributes, or what God is in relation to the universe. Three is his moral attributes, or what God is in relation to his moral beings. Number one, unrelated attributes. God is spirit. God is a spirit with personality. He thinks, feels, speaks, and therefore can have direct communion with his creatures. Made in his image as a spirit, God is not subject to the limitations to which possession of a body subjects human beings to. He does not possess bodily parts or passions. He's comprised of no material elements. He is spirit. This does not imply that God lives a shadowy, unsubstantial existence. For Jesus refers to God's shape. God is a real person, but of so infinite a nature that he cannot be fully apprehended by the human mind or adequately described by human language. Just can't put him in words. Uh, top of 59. No man has seen God at any time. Uh, John means that no man has ever seen God as he is. But we know that spirit may be manifested in bodily form. Therefore, God can manifest himself in a way that can be apprehended by man. Couldn't handle it. Yes, exactly. And then we'll go to B. God is infinite. It says God's infin infinity may be viewed in two ways. One, in relation to space, God is characterized by immensity. In First Kings. It talks about this, that is, the nature of the Godhead is equally present to the whole of infinite space and to every part of it. No part of existence is untouched by his presence and energy, and no point of space escapes his influence. Well, on Sunday nights, Brother Colin did a wonderful presentation about space, the infinity, inf infinite vastness of space in God. It was really good. Um, his presence and glory are revealed in extraordinary manner that place in heaven so to, that ties in with what we just read his presence and glory are revealed hello Corey in extraordinary manner in that place that they're revealed is heaven number two in relation to time God is eternal he has existed from eternity and will exist to eternity. I like that. There's no beginning or end. Past, present, and future are present to his mind. Being eternal, he is unchangeable. The same yesterday, yesterday and today and forever. This is a comforting truth to the believer. Or at least it should be, right? Amen. Yep, page 60. C. 
top of page 60. God is one. Israel's distinctive message to a world that worshiped many false gods. Does this teaching of the unity of God conflict with the New Testament teaching of the Trinity? We must distinguish between two kinds of unity, absolute unity and compound unity. The expression, one man, conveys the thought of absolute unity because we refer to one person. But when we read that man and wife shall be one flesh, Genesis 2.24, that is a compound unity because a union of two persons is meant. So we're getting a little grasp on this for the Trinity, for God, for... Uh, second paragraph. What kind of unity is referred to in Deuteronomy 6.4, which we didn't read it, but this will explain it. From the fact that the word our God is in the plural, Elohim, we conclude that a compound unity may be inferred. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches the unity of God as a compound unity, including three divine persons united in eternal and essential unity. See the difference? Number two, active attributes. God in relation to the universe. God is omnipotent. God's omnipotence signifies two things. His freedom and power to do all that is consistent with his nature. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Of course, this does not mean he can or would do anything contrary to his own nature. And I like two examples they give. He wouldn't make a triangular circle. He's not going to contradict himself or go against his own morals or laws. So he, one thing he wouldn't do, like it says here, is he wouldn't make a triangular circle or he wouldn't make dry water. Number two, his control of sovereignty over all that is or can be done. And here is a question that should get some response. But if this is so, why is evil practiced in the world? Because God has endowed man with free will, which he will not violate. He therefore permits evil acts, but for a wise purpose, and with the prospect of ultimately overruling evil, only God is almighty, and even Satan can do nothing without his permission. I wrote out beside that, that that's such a common question when you confront non-believers yeah. and even sometimes those that, that say that they, they believe their question is then why, why do such bad things happen to somebody has been going to church for 20, 30, 40 years you're not exempt from the bad things happening because evil exists in the world but people have a hard time grasping and rationalizing these things Second paragraph, all life is sustained by God. Man's existence is like the note of an organ, lasting as long as God's fingers are on the keys. Therefore, every time a person sins, he is using the Creator's own power to out outrage him. I wrote out beside that that people have no idea. 
No idea. Though when you're living in sin, when you're denying God, when you're doing your own thing, you have no idea that next breath. It means nothing. And at any moment, that breath can be gone. Um, B, God is omnipresent. That is unlimited by space. What is the difference between immensity and omnipresence? Immensity is God's presence in relation to space, while omnipresence is his presence viewed in relation to creatures. He is present to his creatures in the following ways. In glory to the adoring host of heaven, Effectively in the natural order, providentially in those who seek him, judicially to the conscience of the wicked, man cannot hope to find a corner in the universe where he may escape the law of his maker. There is no hiding your sin. We like to fool ourselves. I know I did. top of page 62 he is present number six boldly in the sun bodily thank you seven mystically in the church and eight officially with his workers while God is everywhere he does not dwell everywhere only when he enters into personal relationship with a group or in an individual is he said to dwell with them seeking See, God is um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Um, this, um, yeah, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> Knowing all things, um, God's knowledge is perfect. He does not have to reason or find out things or learn gradually. His knowledge of past, present, and future is instantaneous. You grasp that? There is great comfort in the consideration of this attribute. In all tests of life, the believer may be sure that your father knows. The
Good, I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to actually hit a little bit on that a little later here. Um, the following difficulty presents itself to some since God knows all things. He knows who will be lost. Therefore, how can a person help being lost? But God's knowledge of how an individual will use that free will does not force that person's choice. God foresees, but does not fix. Make sense? He sees, he already knows, but it's still up to the person's own free will to determine their, yeah, their choice. Uh, D, God is wise. God's wisdom is a combination of his om, omniscience and omnipotence. Omnipotence. See? He has power to so apply his knowledge to the best possible purposes or realized by the best possible means. God always does the right thing in the right way at the right time. <laughs> yes, often it doesn't seem like it to us, but <laughs> um, top of page sixty-three. It talks about providence. God's general providence has to do with the government of the universe as a whole. His particular providence with the details of man's life. God is sovereign. That is, he has an absolute right to govern and dispose of his creatures as he pleases. He possesses the right by virtue of his infinite superiority, his absolute ownership of all, and the absolute dependence of all things on him for their continuance. Can't do it without God, right? Um... This little paragraph in the middle here. The doctrines of God's sovereignty is most helpful in encouraging doctrine. If we had our choice, which should we choose? To be governed by blind fate or capricious, which that means basically just random chance. Or irrevocable natural law or short-sighted and perverted self, or God, infinitely wise, holy, loving, and powerful. He who rejects God's sovereignty may take his choice of what is left. Amen. Amen. Yes, Deuteronomy 30. Choose. Like Terry was talking about on Wednesday. Choose. I know a lot of us in this room have lived, have tried to live some of those other ways. And like Pastor said, I like the way that we're going about it now. Uh, number three, moral tributes. God in relation to moral creatures. God is holy. The holiness of God means his absolute moral purity. He can neither sin nor tolerate sin. The root meaning of holy is separated. 
In what sense is God separated? He is separated from man in space, as he is in heaven, man is on earth. He is separated from man in nature and character. He is perfect. Man is imperfect. He is divine. Man is human. He is moral, morally perfect, and man is sinful. Page 64. a tribute which guards the distinction between God and the creature. Therefore, when God reveals himself in a way that impresses man with his Godhead, he is said to sanctify himself. That is, he reveals himself as the Holy One. When the seraphim describe the divine radiance emanating from him that sits on the throne, they cry, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. Men are said to sanctify God when they honor and reverence him as divine. When they dishonor him by the, by the violation of his commandments, they are said to profane. Profane his holy name. I'm sure we've heard. Only God is holy in himself. Other things that are described as holy are only because God has made them holy or sanctified them. The word holy, applied to persons or objects, is a term expressing a relationship to Jehovah. The fact of being set apart for his service, having been thus set apart, articles must be clean and persons must consecrate themselves to live according to the law of holiness. These facts constitute the basis of the doctrine of sanctification. God is righteous. What is the difference between holiness and righteousness? Righteousness is holiness in action. In one answer, righteousness is God's holiness manifested in right dealing with his creatures. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Another one, righteousness is conformity to a right standard. It is right conduct in relation to others. When does God manifest this attribute? 
One, when he clears the innocent and condemns the wicked and sees that justice is done. God judges, not as, not as modern judges do, on evidence set before them by others. He discovers the evidence for himself. Thus, the Messiah, filled with the divine spirit, does not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but judges with righteousness. Only he, when he returns, will be the righteous judge of all. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Amen. And because he discovers the evidence, I wonder if it keeps him Pardons the, the tentative. We all know that, right? That's repentance. When he chastises and judges his people, when he saves his people, God's in, interposition on behalf of his people is called his righteousness. Number five, when he gives victory to the cause of his faithful servant. After God has delivered his people and judged the wicked, we shall have new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Awesome, huh? God not only deals righteously, but he requires righteousness. But what if the man has sinned? Then he graciously imparts righteousness to the penitent. You see? graciously grants righteousness to the repentant. It still takes repentance. Romans 4, 5. Which I lost. Oh. Pastor just read, this is the basis of the doctrine of justification. It will be noted that the divine nature is the basis of God's dealings with man. As he is, so he acts. The Holy One sanctifies, the righteous one justifies. C. God is faithful. He is obviously trustworthy. His words will not fail. Therefore, his people may stand on his promises. Anybody name a promise of God? He will not leave you or forsake you. You are saved. You have eternity. Yep. There's there's many many promises of God that we can stand upon, and they will not ever ever.
D, God is merciful. God's mercy is the divine goodness exercised with respect to the miseries of his creatures. Remember back, I think, on the second page, it's talking about God, how he's spirit, but he feels, right? Remember Jesus? He wept, right? His creatures feeling for them and making provision for their relief. And in the, in the case of the impotent sinners, the unrepentant, leading to long-suffering patience, which is an attribute that I, I lack some of myself. Many times I, I would like them to either grasp it or not. Either, like Pastor says, with the, was it the frog in the frying pan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But God's long-suffering is, is uh, immeasurable by man. Uh, for one of the most beautiful descriptions of the mercy of God... See Psalms 103. Also, the knowledge of his mercy becomes a ground of hope and a ground of trust. God's mercy was preeminently manifested in sending Christ into the world. Hmm. Yes, 103? 1 John 4, 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is the attribute of God by reason of which he desires a personal relation with those who bear his image. Image bearer, yes. And especially with those who have been made holy and are like him in character. Um... 
not really a lot else said in that paragraph, but God's love is, is everlasting. It's, it's forever reaching. It. I mean, it penetrates hearts of stone. It, it, it's just, it's amazing. I know, I know many of us have been wrapped up in his love many times, and it just, it melts you almost. It's just, the presence is just overwhelming. It just, I think there could have been a lot more said in that paragraph. We kept it pretty short, so. Um, F, God is good. The goodness of God is that attribute by reason of which he imparts life and other blessings to his creatures. We've been on a series lately about blessings. Why does God bless us? It just says because God is good. Um, I'm not going to read all of this. Just some. Uh, hopefully, y'all y'all read this, but it's a really interesting little read. But we're going to start at the bottom of the uh, page sixty-six. It says, have you ever stopped to think that in seed time and harvest, if it should fail once on the whole earth, half of the people would be dead before another harvest? And had it occurred to you that if seed time and harvest should fail two years in succession over the entire planet, everyone living would be dead before another harvest? Two years and the earth is dead. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's what the that's what the story. If anybody didn't read it, that's what this is. is yeah, he was at a house of a non-believer. The non-believer <coughs> said, "I don't really believe in giving thanks for this food," and so then that's where this. Yeah, yeah. So that's where this this whole read. That's where it stems from. Um. It says uh, at the, at the end of the paragraph, top of paragraph one sixty seven, it says God had given him. His own life and his in his power to get grain, God had put life into grain and animal, which were, which we were using for food, which he could never do. Man can't put life in that stuff, but he didn't want seed to give thanks for these things. So, that's uh, I thought that was pretty. If y'all didn't read, it, you want to go back and read it. It's, it's pretty. true too yeah, it's true um, still a few things I want to ask him about flies and mosquitoes and <laughs> stink bugs snakes <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. um, last paragraph on 67 to some the existence existence of evil and suffering presents an obstacle to belief in the goodness of God we touched on this just a minute ago, and if anybody wants to elaborate, feel free. So why did a God of love create a world with so much suffering? He 
The following considerations may cast some light on the problem. God is not responsible for evil. If the careless workman throws sand into a delicate machine, should the manufacturer that built the machine be responsible for the worker? God made everything good, but man has marred his work. Listen to this. Subtract from the suffering of the world, the whole world, all that is due to man, man's willful sin, and there would be not much suffering left. Number two, God being almighty, evil exists by his permission only. We cannot, in every instance, understand why he permits evil, for his ways are past finding out. To the over-speculative, he would say, Why is that to thee? Follow thou me. We can understand part of his ways, sufficient to know that he makes no mistakes. Page 68. If from a spy hole looking with pure blind eyes, part of a fraction of the universe, yet perceive evidence of a plan, I then be so mad as to complain that all cannot be deciphered. Shall I not rather wonder with infinite and grateful surprise that in so vast a scheme I seem to have been able to read, however little, and that little was encouraging to faith. However much of this grand scheme of things you see, you see through blinded eyes that there is a divine, a scheme to everything. Goodness, love, a higher purpose, a creator. In as little bit, as dimly lit as you can see, it's enough to lead you to faith. this read hasn't just helped utter that God is good God is good it's awesome number three God is so great that he can overrule evil for good remember how he worked the things out in Joseph's life he turned what was meant for evil into good uh, in Pharaoh in Exodus Harold uh, and those that rejected the crucified Christ how many times over and over has he turned what was meant, set out for evil, turned it into good? God Almighty would in no way permit evil in his works. Were, were he not so omnipotent and good that even out of the evil he could work good? Many a Christian has come out of the fires of suffering with character purified and faith strengthened. Amen. Terry talks about this a lot. He talks a lot about that refining fire. Suffering has been the coin wherewith they have brought character tried in the fire. Terry mentioned Sunday, which is something big with me because of the voice of the martyrs, and, and I just always really felt need to pray for my brothers and sisters, even though I'll, I'll never meet them outside of heaven, but 
I know that so many struggle and go through so much compared to what we go through here. And Terry mentioned that just briefly Sunday. In China and other places, you know, where they even the mention of Jesus, and they'll come in and arrest the whole family sometimes and say, you can't speak of that or we're going to keep you locked up. How much more privileged we are still here in America. But that sanctification, that fire, that does that not sometimes, and I tend to say yes, invoke a stronger faith? Is not their faith where they're being persecuted daily not stronger than ours who happening in our and not just our churches but in our, our seminaries and colleges yeah that's where it's coming from yeah I mean uh, and the pastors in their denomination yeah. and their service when I got to preach oh. for pastor appreciation for uh, October about two years ago that was one of the you know things that really stuck out to me that in two years 80% of new pastors walk away from the faith completely because they're not they're not being prepared for it right they're they come out with really really views and really beliefs and then try to jump into ministry and they just get ate up whether it's full-time ministry or life in general as a Christian, you know, and, and things start to happen because they will. Things will absolutely 100% start to happen. You you back off, and, it, and it, it's more of a strain on your faith than a, than a faith builder. But whenever you're offered proper perspective going through a hard time and, and you're, you're shown and... Uh, led on how to view that and how to understand it for what it is, um, not to take away from the pain involved, but just understand it for what it is, then as you progress through your walk and, and your pastoral walk or just Christian walk, you understand that why you're being hit to a degree. You know, you don't, we, none of us know why 100%, but you know, they're, they're, it at least gives you an understanding and an appreciation, and it makes it to where your pain is not, it's not meaningless. And it's not in vain. You know, if, if everything traumatic that happens in a human's life has no meaning behind it and is never used in any way to uh, fortify your faith, someone else's faith, um, and lead them back to God, then it's in vain. And oh my gosh, that's horrifying. training in this class, which I have a certificate, 
doesn't tell us everything we need to know, but it gives us a lot. I dare say that college-educated pastors, <laughs> if you want to, you know, go head-to-head -head with me on whatever subject there is, I think I, I think I got you, buddy. Yeah, hold on, because I can I can tell you what the Holy Spirit, and we'll, you know, I've been, well, we're being taught by the Holy Spirit. It's not what's some man's word here. It's God's deal. It's it's not it's not a course in college. Well, I think we should be careful of broad strokes, and it's not to take away from your opinion, Jeff. You and I are brothers by your opinion, obviously, but I think we should be really careful with broad strokes because there are in every situation you can have somebody who has grown up in ministry, child of pastors, knows the Bible in and out, has at some point intermittently had a relationship with the Lord that can do horrible, horrible things or, or lead a congregation astray. And then you've got, you know, I, I have friends that run the gamut, you know, from Teen Challenge graduates to, to uh, Global University, which is the Assemblies of God uh, Bible College, um, and then actual, you know, four-year college, you know, things like that, you know, that... That, that do, so I, I think it's really important that we don't, especially with other people listening in, you know, all of us know each other and we know our hearts, but I think that we should be careful with broad stroking that and and just saying, you know, if, if some, you know, that it's uh, the issue is coming from the universities or that they're being raised up. There are Christians being raised up all over the country of the United States, being raised up with an empty and, and sad, uh, meaningless, purposeless, not actual relationship. And and it's up to us to exemplify what it looks like to actually have that relationship and to walk it out good times and bad. Like Terry said, sometimes they don't even know that they're, you know, they, they, they have only ever known one thing in one way and that they don't even know until, um, and your perspective you said like your sermon i know pastor and his, and his walk, uh, mine and my short walk so far uh, even rooted deep spirit-filled believers can hit a wall sometimes uh, an oppression by by spirits whatever it is they may not catch it in time and i mean the road can get dark sometimes even for but one thing where you know your roots stand out is even during the midst of this, even during the midst of the trial, your, your relationship with God doesn't change. Your, your perspective might change a little bit, but when you come out of it, you're even more revved up and fired up and ready to go for the next round. Yes. Yes. But that's the difference from rooted and grounded, and you walk away from the faith and you stay gone, to you go through a trial, you go through a test, and you get refined, and you come out on the other side even stronger. John on a sermon on that back yep. sort of last year. Yeah. Shift the back to refine it, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was yeah, actually yeah, yeah. Yep. on that book, yeah, when we did the the, the delivery. It was my first book. Yep, yep. And yep. Yeah. yeah, delivering a sermon. But to add to what she said, there are good Bible colleges mm -hmm. and there are bad students Amen. in those colleges. <laughs> the same way with this right out there on Sunday when I preach. There, I, I know that uh, it's kind of almost like I, I think ours is a higher percentage than 
and some, but probably, I'm going to say 50% of the people in there, it may go in one ear and out the other. But the other 50% are sitting there just soaking it up. It's going into their spirit, and it's feeding them, and they're growing and producing change in their life. And so, again, all we can do as ministers is give it out. You know, I've always many times wanted to get a hold of somebody and help them figure some things out, you know, get yep. get my hands on yeah. it. But, uh, yep. again, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. So just like with the church, just like Bible colleges, there's people that are going to come out of Bible college and, and, and last for the duration. And there's going to be some that because, you know, they were just in it to get the grade or in it to, for the money, in it for whatever wrong motivation, they're, they're going to be one of those that, you know, tried in the fire and they're going to die, you know, basically. And I believe in that book, uh, the Delivery and Preparation of Sermons says, whether you're preaching to one or a thousand, it doesn't change the way in which you deliver your sermon. Especially if the sermon is the way it's supposed to be, which is from the Holy Spirit. Instantly, your mind starts, and you, yep. We were at the fall festival, and we each did our little mini sermons, and I felt like nobody was listening those first few, and I got up there, and I was like, hey, you know, but the thing is, we all still delivered it with such purpose, our little snippets of the word, because I just kept telling myself, well, that person over there by that tailgate might be half listening. Right, that's all I need. I just want to throw some seeds out, like a crop dusting plane. Just, yeah. just throw some seeds out and let them land where they will. Yeah. You know. My first thought was was that nobody was looking at me. Neither, either way. Nobody yeah. else was talking, carrying on conversation. I was like, nobody's listening to me. So I started instantly. I started getting discouraged. But then I was like, you know what? Whether they hear me outright or they hear me and just uh, uh, there you go. Yeah. Then they're gonna know about Jesus. So Absolutely. I did my spill by Jesus, and I put the mic up, and I was done. So. Saying that name all by itself is going to be hard. Yeah. You just broke it and just said Jesus, and just said that. It will never return void. It's yeah. never going to go nowhere. Nope. It will never return void. Amen. Amen. Yes. Amen. Good stuff. Um. Hey, sixty-eight number four. God has arranged the universe according to natural laws, and these laws imply the possibility of, of accidents. For example, if a person carelessly or deliberately steps off a precipice, he suffers consequences of violating the law of gravity. Yet we are glad for these laws, for otherwise the world would be in a state of confusion. It should always be remembered that this is not the perfect order of things. God has another life and a future age in which to vindicate all his dealings because he works according to heavenly standard time. We may think that he delays, yet he avenges his elect speedily. God must not be judged until the certain... Uh, hold on, I'll stop right there. I'm going to go back. <clears throat> How many times have different prophets, different people in the Bible, cried out and said... Basically, 
in layman's terms. Are you going to do something about this, God? Isn't it? Why am I still suffering? Why am I still going? Why? You know, it's about time. Come on. Right there. He always makes sure it's done in his timing. You know, like the extra mind blower on that one for me is, is reaching a place where it's like, oh, are you going to do something about them? I mean, seriously, they have made my life so hard. They have really just, Mm -hmm. but then stopping and realizing they're a, they're a sinner just like I am. And I don't want them to burn for eternity. So instead of avenging or getting some sort of justice instead for them to to find that same salvation so that they can be spared the same way that I've been because I've been that thorn in someone's side multiple someone you know and so it's like getting to that place where you don't want even your worst enemy even the the lowest of the low you don't want that for them and I feel like that's that's where we're supposed to be as ministers and as pastors we're we're supposed to want that etern- that eternity with Jesus even for the one that'll never be let out of prison on the face of the earth kind of thing, you know. Yeah, and it's never easy. No. And, and, and Flesh says. I know just recently pastor made a comment on I got pretty I guess what you say ran over on the deal. Uh, really took advantage of lost a lot of money. But in, that, in the midst of talking to him and finding out that I wasn't going to get any money out of the deal, well, believe me, my face got a little red. But I never said anything. And I still need to fix his, uh, his door handle so we could get it out of his truck. So in the midst of all this, knowing I wasn't getting paid, he went outside and sat down. And I finished fixing his truck and gave him his truck for him to drive off. Well, that wasn't easy. And I'm not bragging on myself because, believe me, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, <laughs> the old John would have came out. And it would have been probably a night in jail. That's how far. And that's like I said last time at our meeting. I, God showed me that day of, the, of our meeting, that Tuesday morning, my prayer. Just how far I've come. You know, but to, but I just keep wanting to do it. I'm glad to be on the mill. You know, because when things like that happen and you look back at how much the Holy Spirit has built your own character, you're like, wow, I would have never, ever done all may in your ministry at some point have a person sitting across from you that has killed someone or has molested a child or uh, what's something else that's really bad I know in my ministry I I ministered to a guy one time that uh, killed his wife with a knife It's tough sometimes. Your flesh, you know, you you want, you know, this this thing says so much right here. God will avenge, but that person still has a soul. Uh-huh. And even though, you know, if it's someone near and dear to your heart, uh, man, take them off the face of the earth right now. God, in the name of Jesus, please. You know, it's kind of the emotions that, right. that we go through. But, you know, it says right here, the last thing. Uh, God must not be judged until the curtain has fallen on the last scene of the drama of ages. Then we shall see that he has done all things well. Well, We can't fathom him with our peanut brain. We don't know what the 
all this stuff that's happening in our life is is about even. You know, we're not above. We're not yeah, good, excellent point. And that's one thing that we can take comfort in in the midst of those situations is that he will set things right. He will avenge. It's not up to us. And it's not up to us to judge or condemn whatever that person has done sitting across from us. That's God's job. watch anything on TV, they've got all the answers, they know everything. This person's bad, even though they're not talking about a bad person, it's just they're, what the devil's doing in their lives. You know, <clears throat> TV anchors, athletes, uh, you know, they know everything, they've got money, and they think that they've got a voice in the world, which 50 years ago they wouldn't, <laughs> because they wouldn't have social media, but... Uh, you know, that's the big thing. Uh, look at me. I know everything. I told you. I told you. No, no, no. Yeah, it's a lot different world we live in. It's, uh, we used to think we had to be better off born back in the 1800s, but then I've heard everybody's got yeah, shot. And exactly. Every generation has its own set of challenges, and we know that we were born for a time and a purpose, and the time that we were born into is the time we're meant to be in. <laughs> uh, yep okay um, the trinity of God page 69 um, the scriptures teach that God is one now if y'all read this it kind of repeats itself a few times and for those that don't understand already the trinity this could be a little bit confusing the scriptures teach that God is one and that beside him there is no God. The question might arise, how could God have any fellowship before finite creatures came into existence? The answer is that the divine unity is a compound unity. Remember we learned back in the first of this, compound. Mm -hmm. And that in this unity, there are really three distinct persons, only one of whom is the Godhead. Everyone. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Note that there are three gods, all of whom are independent and self-existing. The three corporate with one mind and purpose, so that in the truest sense of the word, they are one. The Father creates the Son. The, the Father creates, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies. And yet in each operation, the three are present. The Father is preeminently creator, Yet the Son and the Spirit are described as cooperating in that work of creation. The Son is preeminently the Redeemer, yet God the Father and the Spirit act. Uh, the Spirit are described as sending the Son to redeem. The Holy Spirit is the Sanctifier, yet the Father and Son cooperate in that work. The Trinity is an eternal fellowship. The Son entered the world in a new way when he took himself to himself human nature, and he was given a new name, Jesus. The Holy Spirit entered the world in a new way, that is, as the Spirit of Christ, embodied in the church, and yet all three work together. The Father testified of the Son, and the Son testified of the Father, 
the Son testified of the Spirit, and later the Spirit testified of the Son. Uh, top of page 70. The doctrine of the Trinity is clearly a revealed doctrine and not one conceived by human reason. How else could we learn of the inner nature of the Godhead except by revelation? Yes. Son testified of the Father. Okay, so there's the relationship, Father and Son, Son and Father. And then it goes on and it says, The Son testified of the Spirit, and later the Spirit testified of the Son, so the Spirit and the Son, Son and Spirit. What it doesn't say is the Father testified on of the, of the Spirit, and the Spirit testified of the Father. Just wondering why that was left out or if it was intentional. Anyone know? I don't know. I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't catch that. I just kind of thought that it was circled back around. Yeah. That's good, Corey. At least my face doesn't flash. Son to the Spirit. And then, yeah. And then the Spirit to the Son, also in heaven. Well, this is the one we're going to go through now, but it's pretty, pretty good one to look for. We don't have to have a good one. Here, strike, and then strike. No, it's good. It's good. That's that's a, that's a good point. That's a, it's, it's one reason why I said what I said at the start of this, that still today, this is you know, can be hotly debated or misunderstood. Uh, sometimes people still have a hard time understanding how God can be three in one. It's just some people just have a hard time to grasp it. Doctrine defined. We can uh, we can quite understand why the doctrine of the Trinity was sometimes misunderstood and misstated. Um, it was very difficult to find human terms in which to express the unity of the Godhead. In lying stress upon the reality of Christ's deity and the personality of the Holy Spirit, some writers seem to be in danger of falling into try 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 try, 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 try Thank you, Pastor. Or behalf. Or, or belief in three gods. 
other writers laying stress on the unity of God seemed in danger of forgetting the distinction of persons. This last error is commonly known as Sabellism from Bishop Sabellus, who taught that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are simply three aspects or manifestations of God. The error has appeared many times in the history of the church and is current even to today. Y'all catch that? Not confusing, right? Uh, the Father loves and sends the Son. The Son leaves and returns to the Father. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, or send the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes with the Father. If then the Father, Son, and the Spirit are only God under different aspects of names, then the New Testament is a massive confusion. For example, a reading of the intercessory prayer, John 17, with the thought in mind that Father, Son, and Spirit are one person, will reveal the absurdity of the doctrine. As I have given myself power over all flesh, that I should give eternal life to as many as I have given myself, I have glorified myself on earth, I have finished the work which I gave myself to do, and now I glorify myself with my own self, with the glory which I had with me before the world was. <laughs> um, how was the doctrine of the Trinity preserved from becoming overbalanced, either on the side of unity, uh, sabalism, or on the side of triunity, tritheism, by the formalization of dogmas? That is, interpretations which define the doctrine and fence it against error. The following example of dogma is focused in the Athenian Creed formulated during the 5th century. I'm not going to read it all, but down at the bottom of that, it says, The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Because we are thus compelled by Christian variety to, ver, ver, verity, to confess each person severely to be God and Lord. So we per, are prohibited from saying that there are three gods or lords. And at the bottom of that, therefore there is one father, not three fathers. One Son, not three sons. One Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghost. And this is the Trinity. There is nothing first or last, nothing greater or less, but all the three co-eternal persons are co-equal among themselves so that through all, as is above said, both unity and Trinity and Trinity and unity is to be worshipped. can see how without revelation, without the Holy Spirit, people can get really wrapped up and tongue-tied in. Um, okay, number three, the doctrine proven. The Old Testament. The Old Testament does not plainly and directly teach the Trinity. And the reason is evident in a world where the worship of many gods was common it was necessary to impress upon Israel that the truth that God was one and that there was none beside him. Had the Trinity been directly taught in the beginning, 
it might have been misunderstood and misinterpreted. Um, but every time a Hebrew uttered the name of God, Elohim, he was really saying God's. So the word is in the plural. Let us imagine a devote and enlightened Hebrew pondering the fact that Jehovah is one, and yet he is Elohim, God's. Uh, Paul the Apostle never ceased to believe in the unity of God, as he had been taught it from his youth. Indeed, he insisted that he taught no other things but which were found in the law and the prophets. His God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet he preaches the deity of Christ and the personality of the Holy Spirit and puts the three persons together in the apostolic benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, where he wishes them blessings in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Each member of the Trinity is mentioned in the Old Testament. Father is in the scriptures listed, the Son or, or Jehovah in these scriptures, and the Messiah described with divine titles. Uh, Isaiah 9-6 mention is made of the mysterious angel of Jehovah who bears God's name and has power to either forgive or retain sins. Number three, the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2 and through these scriptures listed here. Foreshadowings of the Trinity have been seen in the triple benedict of numbers in the triple doxology of Isaiah 6 3 yes um, be the New Testament the early Christians held as a fundamental of their faith the fact of the unity of God to both Jew and heathen they could testify we believe in one God. But at the same time, they had to had the plan, plain words of Jesus to prove that he claimed a position and an authority which it would have been blasphemy for him to have claimed if he were not God. And the New Testament writers, in referring to Jesus, used language which indicated that they recognized Jesus as over all, God blessed forever. Experience of Christians bore out and supported these claims. When they knew Jesus, they knew him as God. The early Christian could not but believe that the Holy Ghost, who dwelt in them, teaching them, guiding them, and inspiring them to newness of life, was no mere influence or feeling, but a being whom they could know and between whom their souls could be real communion. So the early church was confronted with two facts, that God is one and the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. The bottom of that paragraph. From these facts was that in the Godhead there was a real but mysterious distinction of, of personality, which distinction became manifest in the divine work for man's redemption. Last paragraph. A comparison of text taken from all parts of scripture shows that number one each of the three persons is creator although it is stated that there is but one creator two each is called Jehovah three the Lord the Lord of Israel 
the lawgiver, omnipresent, and the source of life. Yet it is affirmed that there is only one being who may thus, who may be thus described. Number three, each made mankind, quickens the dead, raised Christ, commissions the ministry, sanctifies God's people, and performs all spiritual operations. Yet it is clear what one God is capable of these things. The doctrine illustrated number four. Thank you, Pastor. Um, number four. Uh, we do not... We're almost done, right? Yes, okay. Uh, we do not wonder at their perplexity, for in considering the inner nature of the eternal God, we are dealing with a form of existence much different from our own. How, different, how difficult he would find it to understand... If y'all didn't read this, this is about the alien or the Martian. <coughs> how difficult he would find it to uh, understand the fact of growth. How, how he would easily understand how a thing could increase like the pile of stones when you see someone adding to the pile, the pile grows. But he would find it difficult to understand how growth could in, in, endure inside. And then once he started to grasp that, then you move into intelligence displayed by higher animals how difficult he would find it to understand what is meant by liking or disliking choosing or refusing knowing or being ignorant and then when he started to get that then you move into what is meant by mind and how it works he would have to try to understand something higher than mind here again he would be confronted with something new strange and not to be explained that as the visitor from Mars, we expect, and we too shall do well to expect, that when we pass from considering the nature of man to considering the nature of God, we shall find something new. Almost every day. Um, A. Nature. Furnishes many analogies. Water is one, yet it is known in three forms. Water, ice, and steam. There is uh, one electricity, yet in a streetcar... It works as motion, light, and heat. Um, down at the bottom, it talks about light. has three weight rays. The attentic, which is invisible. Second is the lumifarious, which is visible. Third is the calorif calorific, which gives heat. Where these three are, there is light. Where there is light, we have these three. John the Apostle said, God is light. God, is, the Father, is invisible. He became visible in the Son, and he is operative in the world through his spirit. Uh, human personality, God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, man is one, yet triparate, cons consisting of spirit, soul, and body. 
human consciousness points to divisions in personality. Have we not at times become conscious of reasoning with ourselves and ourselves listening to the conversation? I talk to myself and I listen to myself talking to myself. <laughs> C, relationship. God is love, as we stated earlier. He was eternally a lover, but love requires an object of love. In being eternal, he must have had an eternal object of love, namely his son. The eternal lover and the eternal beloved and the eternal bond and over outflowing of that love is the Holy Spirit. And that finishes up too. So that's a that's a frequent, and I, and I explain, you know, when we're when we are uh, when we do things of that nature, um, we are connecting with the spiritual world that our bodies don't have senses to perceive, and we are we are speaking into a realm that that we don't understand and we can't perceive, but does have the ability to have influence on us, and that the Holy Spirit is the God of that realm, that that is a realm that we cannot perceive, and the Holy Spirit is uh, is the God of that realm. So whereas Jesus is, is the God that we can see, touch, feel, um, the Holy Spirit is, is the God of the spiritual world, and then, and, and then God is just, you know, the way that I, I explain it is he's in space, right, heaven. Heaven, crawl yeah. space, yeah. right? He, he, and I, and I picked that up tonight. I didn't have those lyrics uh, this morning, but that, that God is in, in space, and, and Jesus is. Jesus was here on Earth to perceive the world through our 
flesh and that the Holy Spirit. That's just how I've kind of connected the dots using science and how I, and I, I just thought it was, um, I, I didn't read ahead, so I apologize. And I just thought it was um, uh, coincidental that I had that discussion with her just this morning on the way to school here we're talking about it. And I don't know if that's right, wrong, or otherwise, but that's just how I perceive and understand Thank you. 